If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe the One whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in My Father's name, and you do not receive Me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how Will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would speak to us. That your word, your revelation, given to your church to equip us for the work of the ministry given to increase our knowledge of Christ and therefore our joy in Christ, we pray, Lord, that this Word would speak to our hearts this morning. Jesus points us to all kinds of different witnesses so that we might know that He is indeed who He claims to be, the Christ and our Savior. Father, You have borne witness to this truth in many of our own hearts. As You have worked within us, as You worked within Lydia to open up our hearts to receive the Gospel testimony. Father, we pray this morning that You would increase our faith we would grow in our belief in Jesus, in our obedience to Him, unto the glory of God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we are concluding John chapter 5. And just by way of summary, in case you haven't 
been here or just need a refresher, John 5 is all about Jesus asserting His equality with God. And therefore, His divinity, His eternal existence, His nature that He shares with the eternal God. It is virtually impossible, unless you are using some kind of wild, interpretive gymnastics to read this chapter and come away with any other conclusion except that Jesus believes and is claiming to be God. I say that because there are many Christian, scare quotes, Christian cults who claim that Jesus never believed Himself to be God. There are religions, such as Judaism and Islam, who also deny the deity of Jesus, and they will often say things that are very similar. They will say, there is no verse in the entire Bible, in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, where you will find Jesus saying explicitly, I am God. And therefore, Jesus did not believe Himself to be God, and He was not God. Now that assertion, that you don't find any place in the New Testament where Jesus says those three words together, is true. But friends, I would encourage you not to let anyone ever confuse you with such a silly argument as that. It is a fallacy to force only certain words and only certain phrases into Jesus' mouth as the only criteria in determining whether or not He believed Himself and claimed to be God. That's creating something that has to take place and imposing it upon the text and imposing it upon Jesus Himself. That's that's just one problem with that kind of argument. Again, you hear it from many other religions. As Liz and Rebecca will be going to college soon, you will hear it in college perhaps in religious courses as well. The more important problem, however, is that without ever using the sentence, I am God, from Jesus' mouth, the Jews, who Jesus was speaking to, clearly interpreted Jesus' words to mean that very thing. And Jesus never denied it. He never denied that conclusion they reached. So as we saw a few weeks ago and even last week, based upon Jesus' claim that He does exactly what the Father does and that God is His Father in a unique way, His Father in a a way that is different uh, from the sense that He is our Father. He's His Father from all eternity. Based upon these claims, the Jews sought 
to kill him. We read this in verse 19. Because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You can't get any clearer than that. So that is what John 5 is all about. Jesus is asserting His divinity and His equality with God, and knowing that this is a claim which many of the Jews do not accept and will not accept, He proceeds to give a defense of these very claims. Verses 19-30, as we saw last week, He points to the identical actions He shares with the Father. God the Father, they, they believe, rightly, is the eternal judge. And Jesus Himself is the one who executes this judgment. God has the power to give life. He has the power to take away life. He has the authority to do these very things. And so also does Jesus, as the Son of God, have that same power and authority to give life. Now, in verses 31 to 47, Jesus is going to appeal to other witnesses. It was a requirement in the Old Testament law, and and Paul read this passage for us earlier from Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 17 also speaks of this, but it was a requirement in the Old Testament law that if there was any legal charge to be brought against a person, it could only be substantiated by multiple witnesses. If there were multiple witnesses present. These, these could be human witnesses, right? Eyewitnesses, people who had actually seen something take place. Or it could be other pieces of evidence. But this was the standard in the Old Testament law. There has to be two or three witnesses for any charge to be substantiated. Well, Jesus is going to use this standard to make the case for the truthfulness of His claims in our text. Only He's not going to appeal to two witnesses. And He's not going to appeal to three witnesses. He is about to marshal five different witnesses that bear witness to who He is. He's going to appeal, number one, to John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Number two, His own works. Number three, the Father Himself bears witness to Him. The Scriptures is number four. And then as the text ends, number five is Moses. All of these witnesses, taken together, support Jesus' own testimony that He is the divine Son of God as He claims to be. Now before we look at each of these I want you to notice that the witnesses Jesus appeals to all share something in common. They are all sources of authority that the Jewish people He is in dialogue with at that moment already accept as authoritative. Okay? Notice that. The Jewish people already accept each of these individual witnesses as authoritative sources to bear witness. So many of the Jewish people, as we have seen 
accepted John the Baptist as a legitimate prophet of God raised up and sent by God to prepare the way of the Messiah. So early on in John chapter 1, we see John the Baptist. And even in the other Gospels, we see John the Baptist and many of the Jews coming to him, not initially certain who he is. They ask him, right, are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Right? And, and Jesus as well as the other Gospel writers, identify John the Baptist as that Elijah prophet who was promised to prepare the way for Jesus' coming. Many of the Jews began to follow John the Baptist and accepted him as a prophet, even, even when he was executed. It was a political calculation that had to be taken to execute John the Baptist because Herod knew the people believed him to be a prophet. So the Jews accepted John the Baptist as a prophet. Jesus appeals to John the Baptist as a witness. We've already seen as well that certain religious leaders, like Nicodemus, at a bare minimum, affirmed that Jesus performed miraculous signs. And Nicodemus came to him, and he, ne- he never said anything to the effect of, I know you claim to be doing miraculous things, but I've never seen it. No. Right? He came to Jesus and he says, we know you are a teacher come from God, because no one can do these signs that you are doing, unless you were sent from God. So even some of the religious leaders accepted That Jesus, at a bare minimum, performed works given to Him from God. They also, of course, believed in the God of the Old Testament, who they refer to as the Father, who Jesus refers to as the Father. Jesus appeals to the Father as a witness. They accepted the Scriptures as the divine authoritative Word of God, and Moses, of course, was their supreme example and teacher. And so Jesus, in making His argument for who He is, is appealing to multiple authorities they already accept. This is His his method. Now this is a method of reasoning with unbelievers. And as we continue into the New Testament, we see even the Apostle Paul using. Only... It was presented a little differently because Paul's context was often different. So, for example, when Paul was in Athens and he had the opportunity to go before the Areopagus and explain the Gospel, he was in pagan territory. They didn't accept these sources of authority. They didn't accept the Old Testament Scriptures as the divine revelation of God. They rejected it. It was not an authority for them. And so what do we find Paul doing in his Gospel witness? We find him doing this. He appealed to sources of authority they did accept 
in order to demonstrate the errors of their own beliefs and lead them to the truth of the gospel. You can read about this in Acts chapter 17. We find there Paul quoting a pagan poet. A poet whose teaching many of the people present in the Areopagus accepted as true. He quoted a pagan poet who wrote, For we are indeed, speaking of humanity, we are indeed the offspring of God. And then Paul reasoned with them, If you believe you are the offspring of God, you men of Athens, then you ought not to think that God is an idol made with your own hands. Right? He's appealing to their source of authority and using it to reason with them and expose their folly, bring them to a knowledge of the Gospel. This is his method. Then, of course, when Paul was in the synagogues preaching the Gospel, he very freely appealed to the Old Testament Scriptures in his Gospel presentation because the Jews, of course, already accepted them as authoritative. So what we find both Jesus and Paul doing is using whatever authority a person believes in as a tool to present the Gospel. To present the truths of the Gospel. And the reason that they can do that is because ultimately, every kind of authority under heaven is an authority that points us back to God. And if your ultimate authority is the creation itself, right, as it, as it may be in, in a naturalistic worldview, if your ultimate authority is, is human reason, these things themselves according to revelation of God, point us to something beyond the creation. All authorities ultimately point us to God Himself. Now friends, I am I'm saying this. I think it's worth thinking about because we live in a post-Christian society. If... If we have any notions that America is a Christian nation, we need to sacrifice those notions immediately. Because they're not true. Long gone are the days when we might have been able to say that the vast majority of people in America are Christian. That's not the case. We live in a post-Christian society. And since that is the case, whenever you share the Gospel with someone, one of the first things you should do is try to understand what that person's ultimate authority actually is. Everyone has an ultimate authority. Everyone has one. Everyone has a belief system. Everyone has a worldview that shapes the way they think. It is a helpful thing to do to ask questions to discover what that person's authority is. There will be a place when the Scripture and the truths of the Gospel are able to be presented to that person. But if someone does not accept the Bible as authoritative, you can quote verses until you're blue in the face. 
and they will not accept them. Now don't mishear me. I'm not saying don't ever use Scripture in evangelism or discipleship. It is the very Word of God and the Gospel that is the power of God for salvation. But we have to recognize that living in a post-Christian society, we have to talk to people a little bit differently than we might have been able to 40, 50, 60 years ago. Ask people questions. What is your ultimate authority? Is it your own reasoning capabilities? That's a very common one in a secular society. It's my own mind. I, I am the ultimate determiner of what is true. Right? What I believe is true for me. It may not be true for you, but it is true for me. Reason, in that case, is that person's ultimate authority. Is it another religion? Is it a certain philosophy? And as you ask questions and you discover what they believe through asking these questions, you can then use their own source of authority to point them to Christ. I'm just going to give an example. If you were talking to a Muslim who accepts the Quran as their authoritative text, you do realize you can actually use their own text to point them to your text, to the Gospel. Because in their own text, it tells them to listen to the people of the book. That's us. So you can use that as a method to then move them into what the New Testament the Old Testament teaches. Everyone's source of authority ultimately points back to God in some way. It is our, our goal that we should have to be able to use that to point people to Christ. And as I said, that seems to be what Paul did, and it appears to be what Jesus Himself did in John chapter 5 here this morning. As I said before, Jesus appeals to five sources of authority to bear witness to the truth that He is the Son of God, all sources of authority which these Jewish hearers accepted. The first witness was John the Baptist. We see this in verses 33 to 35. He says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in this light. Jesus is saying, I don't actually need a man. A man whom I created with my own breath and my own power to bear witness to me. Why? Because I am the Creator. But I want you to believe the truth. I want you to be saved, Jesus is saying. I want you to accept what this prophet whom you claim to rejoice in said. I know your hearts are hard, and so I'm going to give you evidence that you might accept. Exhibit A, John the Baptist. This is a man you accepted as a prophet 
And He told you clearly He was not the Christ. And when He saw Me, He pointed you to Me and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. This is He. This is the One whom I was preparing the way for. Listen to His testimony. And believe Him. Points to John the Baptist because they accepted His testimony. The second witness Jesus points to is His own, but to Bible-believing Christians. The study of Scripture alone does not save. There are world-renowned scholars who know the contents of the Bible better than most everyone in this room. As I said earlier, Jewish religious leaders in the first century would have had the contents of the Bible completely memorized. There are theologians even today who have written volumes upon volumes of treatises on biblical doctrine and yet who see in Jesus nothing more than an interesting ancient Jewish religious figure. That's it. Scripture is not sufficient to save. Because Scripture functions very much like a signpost functions. It points us somewhere. It points us to the Savior. It brings us before our King. Like a father who leads his daughter down the aisle to be taken into the arms of her groom, Scripture leads us to the great bridegroom. Tragedy of many of the Jews, tragedy of many today, is in believing that devoting oneself to the study of Scripture alone will bring about salvation. Friends, don't misunderstand this, or don't miss this. In seminaries across America and across the world, there are students devoting themselves to Scripture who are lost. And in churches across America and across the world, there are many people devoting themselves to the study of Scripture who don't know the one it points to. It's very easy to fall into the error that devoting oneself to the study of Scripture is somehow going to earn your favor with God. It's a very deceitful kind of legalism. I know I'm holy. I know I'm right with God because I'm constantly reading my Bible. We know that Scripture is good, but like so many good things, when we do not understand in what way a thing is good, we can easily turn that thing into an idol and devote ourselves to it rather than to God. 
Scripture is given to us as a gift, but not for its own sake. It's given to us so that through it and in it, we can come to know our Savior. Through it, we can come to know God. Let me be clear as well. There is no coming to God apart from the Word of God. It is His revelation. It is His Word. It is what brings about, it is the means that brings about life in a person. But it does so as it points that person to Christ, who is the Savior and the giver of life. We need to be careful not to fall into the error of the Pharisees in finding the study of Scripture to be an end, an end in and of itself. Lastly, Jesus appeals to Moses as a witness also to Himself in verses 45 and 47. Jesus says of the Jews in these last verses that they had set their hopes on Moses. This was very literally the case. Their focus was on the law that He had given them. Their focus was on the commandments that He had given to them by revelation of God. And they identified themselves as the people of God simply because Moses had given to them as an ethnic Jewish people the law and the Old Covenant. Their trust in addition was not just on the commandments, but in other things that Moses, that Moses gave them in the law, such as circumcision. Many of the Jews had confidence that they knew God and that they were the people of God by virtue of this physical act of circumcision. It, it, it rightly marks off on an outward scale who the people of God are, but it does nothing to transform a person's dead heart. Many of the Jews, again, looked at their circumcision as evidence, despite their life, despite their legalism, despite their immorality, they considered circumcision alone as sufficient to declare them the people of God. But in this emphasis, in their emphasis on commandments and on circumcision and on certain works of the law, they missed the testimony of Moses which came through the many promises found throughout the first five books of the Bible. So Moses, no doubt, gave laws and commanded the people to obey them. And if they were to obey them, God would give them blessings in the land. If they were to break that covenant, God would bring upon them curses. But Moses did not only give law. He wrote the first five books that we have in the Bible. Genesis to Deuteronomy. And all throughout there, we find Moses also giving promises to God's people. Promises that point them beyond the giving of the law itself. 
So in the very beginning of Genesis, you will remember the fall of man. This is Moses writing this for his posterity, right? For his people. And Adam and Eve fall into sin and God gives a promise from you, Eve. I'm going to raise up an offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. From you, Eve, salvation will come to the world. It was Moses himself as well who recorded the account of Abraham, whom God also gave a promise both to the Israelites and to the nations. Through you, Abraham, I'm going to raise up an offspring. And this offspring is going to bring blessings to the nations, to the entire world, beyond the borders of your own people. And even in Genesis as well, we already have the beginnings of the promises of a future king to come. Moses records that for us. That through the tribe of Judah, one would come who would have the scepter and who would reign over the world. These are promises found throughout the law. These Jewish people, Jesus speaking to, had set their hopes on Moses. The problem was that they didn't believe all that he wrote. They believed certain portions. Certain portions which would allow them to justify themselves before God. They believed in the law. but They believed in a law stripped of all of its promises of grace. And it was in this respect that their greatest error was made because it was grace that Jesus, as the promised offspring and King, was coming into the world to give. I mean, just imagine if you are anticipating a certain figure to come. And yet your only understanding of this figure is that He's going to bring in more law. When a king comes, when a Christ comes, who's here bringing grace, your narrative is getting blown out of the water. Christ came to bring grace. We see this theme already in John chapter 1 through Moses came The law, grace, and truth came through Jesus Christ. All of the promises found in the law find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Friends, that is is the message that gospel-believing churches and believers have now to give to the world. Stop working for your salvation. To to, to the Muslim who's seeking to obey their text in order to get right with Allah. Stop trying to work your way into heaven when a gift has been given. It's free. that That is the message that we have now to give to the world. God says that as this message goes forth to the nations, He will bless it. He will bear witness 
within people's hearts so that they now receive what they would not have received before. They believe, and through belief they receive eternal life. There are many, many witnesses that Jesus gives us here in John 5 that bear witness to the truth of who He is. The task we now have is to continue that same bearing of witness. And we do that as we share the Gospel with our neighbors, with our friends, with our family, and with those in the nations. Would you pray with me? Father, we are Your children by virtue of the fact that somehow someone bore witness to who Jesus was to us. Someone opened their mouths and spoke to us the Gospel. Someone pointed us to Your Word in which You bore witness to Your Son. And as witnessing went forward, and as the testimony of the Gospel was given to us, You caused us to believe. And so Father, we, we are a people who have only reason to rejoice this morning. And Lord, we ask that You would make us as John the Baptist. You would make us as Moses. You would make us as Paul. You would make us bold, confident witnesses to the salvation that is found in Christ in the world. Let us, Lord, be a people who seek not the glory of man, who seek not our own glory, but who seek the glory which comes from God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.